0: Hello and welcome to Boothcast. This Boothcast is brought to you by Short & Partners Financial Services. Now these guys are the best in the business for wealth management or financial planning. So if you need any advice, please check out Short & Partners online. Um, they've got amazing advisors there to help you with that money. And we really just want to be supporting the sponsors that support the industry and support Ocean Paddling as a whole. Uh, Short & Partners have done an amazing job over the past four years and a few more years to come, I'm sure. So. If you're looking for anything to do with wealth management or financial planning, please check out Sean Partners. Now I'm going to throw you over to my interview with Surf Ironman, Matt Bull. Hello and welcome to BoothCast. On BoothCast, I speak to people about sport, business and the winning mindset. Today's BoothCast guest is coming from the Gold Coast in Queensland. He is a nutri Iron Ironman Series champion, a Molokai Tawahu paddleboard champion uh one of the biggest paddleboard events in the world he's also competed in, in, in the isa world games he's won that he's a very versatile athlete he's one of the longest serving iron men on the series at the moment so matt Poole, thank you so much for coming on
1: yeah thank you thank you for having me uh all i can take from that is that i'm old and getting towards the back end of my career that that realization
0: yeah, so you're 32 now, I think, so you've had a really good, amazing amazing career, and we're going to talk about that today, but can you give us a little bit of an insight into who you are and what you do, and um, sort of like a little, bit, a little bit of an insight for our guests as to who you are?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I grew up in surf life-saving, I grew up in Sydney, um, was always in the water and playing a lot of sports sort of thing, but I guess the natural calling for me was always surf life-saving and, and more predominantly Ironman racing. Uh, at, eight, you know, at about 18, I left home in Sydney and moved to the Gold Coast to chase that dream, to be in the, the professional Ironman series. And um, yeah, I think 18 or 19 years old, I, I won the junior Australian Ironman title, which gave me a free ticket into the NutriGrain Ironman series at the time. Um, very young, full of confidence and didn't have a great work ethic back then and and sort of finished up the tail end of the series. And um, then, yeah, just the next year, I had a a turnaround sort of year and and ended up winning my first round and finished third overall in the series. So I guess um, showed a lot of promise from a young age, but I guess it was more or less similar to my racing and lifestyle. It was just like a bullet at a gate. So I was all over the place. Consistency was not my strongest thing but I could have some of the most memorable races and I could have some of the most um, truly forgettable races some absolute shockers so that was kind of the way I've been through um, a large portion of my career and my racing is um, that sort of wear your heart on your sleeve style attitude and um, look I've been I've been very fortunate for sure in our sport I've been one of the lucky ones that's branded with some huge sponsors I've been for the most part of my career, nearly all my career, I've been branded with Red Bull and Nutrigain and uh, Reebok and, and you know company and engine swimwear companies like this and and now Sean Partners as well. I've been with some incredible brands and incredible companies that have allowed me to do what I do. But um, for sure, um, I guess that makes that sort of led me in the back end of my career to do a lot more outside of the Ironman racing. I wanted to be much more of a waterman or an endurance athlete. A whole. Whole sort of um, aspect of endurance, water, sort of fitness athletes. So, whilst a lot of the guys are very specific to surf life saving and Ironman racing in Australia, that's great. I started to venture over and do uh, to Hawaii, I went to Molokai and did, competed in the Molokai to Hawaii World Paddleboard Championships and um, finished on the podium three times there and, and once actually won the title in 2014. And I also did a, a number of other sort of Waterman and ocean man events. So I competed for Australia in the um, ISA Games over in Fiji, a team you were part of as well, which is a pretty epic experience. I won the tech race over there, which was unreal. And I also went to places like Tahiti and competed in their Watermana um, Festival or their Ironmana event. So I went to Bora Bora um, and, and won the event over there. And, I think I've told you that story. It was probably the most horrific stand-up paddle event of my life. i had done almost next to no paddling. And uh, I think we did like a 50-plus or maybe even 60K stand-up paddleboard um, race or event over there. And it was by no means was it pretty or fast. It was technically horrible and painful and disgusting to watch, but got it done. And um, I guess that's where I'm sort of touching one, I guess. What sort of, who am I to to the people listening? It's like, uh, I do a lot of the surf life-saving Ironman racing is what I'm accustomed to and grew up doing, but I've tried to diversify myself as much more of an endurance waterman athlete and, and I've had some great sponsors that have allowed me to do that.
0: Yeah, it's been awesome to obviously be a part of and, and be following your career over the past, I don't know, ten years at least. And it I guess it was, I, I sort of was racing against you when we were kids. I still remember that photo. We're crossing the fence on the board <laughs> race and you talk about being a small kid, but I was a small kid. I was like sort of at your waist and you were I think I was probably like under under thirteens and I was competing up in under fifteens yeah. and you were you were massive. But you didn't really hit your your stride. you like you grew up in in Manly. Um, on the Northern Beach of Sydney, competed for Queensland as a kid. Like, were you a competitive junior? Ah, uh, yeah.
1: For, before we move
0: on to that, I just want to talk about that photo.
1: That photo is epic. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, the width of a McDonald's straw or something. I don't know. <laughs> the, to- the torso of an ibis. And um, you're like this really short, stocky little kid and we're running up the beach side by side. It's a classic photo. I'll have to share that sometime. Maybe I'll, I'll do that when we get this thing going live. I'll just send that photo out. But yeah, um
0: I, I was actually trying to find it this morning I, I <laughs> i've got it. it i know
1: it's I know it's in the camera <laughs> roll somewhere, so i'll find it um yeah, so we growing up in sydney i was uh, t- I was always at the ocean, you know i I love surfing I, I surfed actually as much if not more than I did sort of surf life saving as a focus when I was young and in high school, so I didn't really naturally, as a young kid, have that real hard sort of work ethic. I didn't come from a pool swimming background like a lot of the omen I didn't come from a sort of a running background or a kayaking background. I was very much just a guy that grew up surfing and loved being down the beach. So um, as far as natural talent went, I had a lot of natural talent, but I didn't have a great work ethic or... or or I guess the fundamental things of what you need to be a, an Ironman is a really good hard work ethic, and, and you can't cut corners. So when I was young, I had a lot of natural talent. I was a really good board paddler, but I was a horrific swimmer. Like when people like look at me now, they're like, "Oh, your you swim's probably your strong leg." Like I would, I wouldn't even make it through a heat at the local branch at the local branch carnival as a nipper in, um, you know, when I was in Queenscliff, I was a terrible swimmer. I had no interest in it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, when I was young, I was, yeah, just a ball paddler, as I said. And as I got older, I started to swim a little bit more, started to work more at it. And um, obviously, you know, work hard and, and things would come to fruition eventually. But certainly didn't come naturally at, um, to me. And it wasn't until I had that big growth spurt when I sort of first moved to the Gold Coast and started to grow into that long sort of giraffe body of mine. Um, the results started to come with that sort of growth spurt plus um, changing of mindset of training hard and everything else
0: and did you compete in any other sports as a kid or was it just always about having fun and and going out into the ocean and, and just participating and sort of having that sort of fun environment or was there some competitive sports you played or competed in as well
1: yeah, no, I played, well, I guess in winter, I always played um, NRL and Rugby Union as a kid. I was actually half decent at NRL. I remember in under 12s, I got the I got man of the match at the grand final that we won as a young kid and stuff. I don't know how or why. I wasn't a great footballer, but um, I mean, yeah, I played NRL and, and I played Rugby Union, as I said, for the first 15 in high school and things like that, but... Um, I guess it was almost just like something to do because all my mates kind of played footy. For me, it was never something that I was ever thought I'd continue in going down the path for me. And as everybody else probably matured in high school and got a lot bigger, I didn't. So obviously football was getting squeezed out pretty fast as a possible career for me. Um, but yeah, definitely, I guess it was just different. You know, Naturally, I guess life shapes you into a path, a natural path or direction for you that you're best suited to. And that was always leaning towards the ocean for me and, and whether that was surfing or surf life-saving or whatever it be, they were certainly the two um, things that I was, I just loved, I loved doing, you know, it's when you're a young kid, you'd know that like, you don't ever think, oh everyone says like, I want to be a professional Ironman when I grow up but it's kind of like, oh, I'd still do it for free when I'm a young kid, you just love doing it because you enjoy it, you enjoy being down the beach, you enjoy being with your mates and Um, you're pretty young, wild and carefree then. You're not thinking about a career and job and this, that and the other. Um, Obviously, as you get older, you get more competitive and then it gets to a point where you're like, I need to start turning this into a career or a job or I need to go off and study and, and get a real career or a job or a different style of job, you know. And um, I was very fortunate, as I said, that um, I, I showed a little bit of talent early. I, I got sort of some great opportunities to, to move up to Northcliffe, a huge surf club, which I actually just signed back there again now. So I got a really good opportunity to go to Northcliffe and train alongside some of the biggest names in the sport at the time. I can remember being a young kid who certainly wasn't sure of myself um, in terms of talent, and turning up at day one training with like Pierce Leonard, Kane Eckstein, Shannon Eckstein, Zane Holmes, um, Tate Smith, Nick Creely, like, you know, there's some huge names in our sport. Some of them have won Olympic gold medals as well. So it's um, pretty daunting and you get kind of thrown in the deep end at a young age and it's like sink or swim. So there was a couple of years there where I very well could have just moved back to Sydney and, and chosen a, a normal desk job or something of the type, but... Fortunately for me, I just kept working hard and, and things have played out the way they have.
0: Yeah, and it's obviously you've had a lot of success and and your mindset's changed over time. But did you start early days in Nippers or were you a late bloomer?
1: No, I was I was really young. I was so uh, at five years old, I actually joined DY Surf Club. I was at DY Surf Club till I was around twelve or eleven or twelve maybe. And then I moved across to Queenscliff again um, in terms of surf-life saving talk. Queenscliff was kind of the big dominant club at the time. They had the names of like Jeremy Cotter, Naomi Flood, Brad Gall, some uh, big names like that. And um, also big idols and, and people that I looked up to at the time. So I moved across to Queenscliff. Um, that was a good opportunity for me at the time. And um, I was trained, my coach at the time was Jeremy Cotter's dad, Billy Cotter. And, um, you know, he, he kind of really started to, I guess, from, from the youngest of age, install that belief of like, you're still only young but you're good at this. There could be something for you here, you know? And, and that was, you know, Jeremy used to run around and, and Naomi Flood used to run around in the nutri Nine Man series and I'd go to all the rounds that I could and watch them and thought it was pretty cool and wanted to be like them. So um, from a very young age, I was always surrounded by people in that world, in that environment. And I guess that was, for me, it was just a pretty straight line of where I wanted to go as a path.
0: Yeah, and it's obviously a very, very strong club, Queenscliff, going through the junior ranks. And I guess you had a lot of Ironmen from that Sydney area competing in the Australian Series in those early 2000s, which is probably when you started to look up to guys like Jeremy Cotter and, and Naomi Flood and, and those type of people. But was there anybody else you were really inspired by or aspiring to be like as a kid?
1: Um funny, so, I always inspired to be like Plato. This is a weird one. Um, I just remember he was always that guy that was the funny guy, smiling on the start line, the finish line, and um, I always remember very clearly like I think it was Portsy or somewhere it was massive one of the rounds, and he was standing up on his board when he went down ways and stuff like that and as a young kid, you kind of remember those moments he had the black carbon fiber Bennett board with the snake at the back and I just always remember Claydo as a bit of a and a funny guy. and um, Fortunately, as I, I got older and so did he, he got a little bit more bald. But he, um, I got to race him in the, the series of a couple of years that I was in there. And, you know, he was more or less the same guy. He was still the guy out there smiling on the start line, talking to you when you're in the cans. And you're like, shut up, mate. <laughs> you know, you, you grow up and you're like... Oh, this guy's my idol. He's laughing and smiling and talking to anyone. Then you get into a race next to him and you're like, shut up, that's really annoying. (laughs) You're trying to race. So, no, he's a good guy. So I still see Play-Doh around everywhere. But, yeah, they're they're kind of the guys that I used to really um, look up to, guys like Play-Doh. Corey Hutchings was another one funny. We met him through family friends when I was quite young. I always loved Corey Hutchings. I just remember him being, you know, the Kiwi. The Kiwi athlete in the neutraline, really good on the board, great surf sort of skills, stuff like that. Um, Jeremy, Floody, all those guys were, were idols of mine when I was young for sure.
0: Yeah, you've got some really good names there. And I know Corey Taylor, like, really looked up to Corey Hutchins a guy I had Corey on the show recently and he sort of said he was a bit of a larrikin as well. So you sort of really resonated with those type of characters. And I guess you sort of had like a Dennis Rodman moment uh, throughout the, uh, <laughs> the series when you had the, the pink and the blue and the, the different colors for breast cancer. So it sort of shows that, that who you were looking up to um, in the early days really defined you as a person as well. And, and sort of you became that type of character in the series. Um, but we'll, we will get to that. So, but when was the moment in the junior ranks for you where you went right maybe maybe like I can actually do this like I know Billy was like sort of um really coaching you towards that giving like instilling that idea in your mind but when did you go right now I'm, I'm a terrible swimmer I'm probably not getting the results that I feel like I should be getting now I actually want to be an Ironman I want to commit to training I want to actually get something like I know you won on the under 17 Ironman title and you've said that was like one of the, the change points but was there something before that that really started to really go, okay, maybe I, maybe I can be a professional Ironman and, and can chase in these footsteps of my idols?
1: Yeah, um, I guess it's sort of like a few pivotal moments in everyone's career or a time at one stage or another where they go, wow, that's um, that's something that you kind of draw back on. But for, for me, I can almost solely identify that down to the Australian um, Ironman title. And, and the reason for that was whilst I was probably talented maybe even more than I actually believed in myself I still always considered myself as quite a small um kid you know with who was good but not great I I just don't think I truly had that belief in myself um through the through the younger age groups as an Ironman anyway board paddler I was very confident swimmer I knew it was an obvious um weakness so as an Ironman it left me with a big hole in my game and um I guess I can throw names around, this might be more or less irrelevant to some people now, but there was a kid called Ryan Lysart and James Stewart when we were um, very young, and you know those boys, and Ryan Lysart and James Stewart were absolute monsters in comparison to me in terms of size, stature, and just confidence and ability, in every way they basically trumped me, Um, they were both incredible swimmers and incredible board paddlers, and so much so. Ryan went pretty well two years straight in the under-16s, undefeated without losing a race in the Ironman. And um, I was still quite small and whatever else. And we got to the under-17 Ironman final at Aussies. And it was um, board swim. And I did what I always do. I, I had a good board start. I came in with a little bit of a lead with maybe one or two other guys. And I went into the swim leg, and sure enough, as we were coming in, um, Dan Moody, who was a Kiwi Ironman, really talented, James Stewart, and Ryan Lysart swam me down. Those four of us side by side, and this wave came. All four of us body surfed it, and I ended up actually holding it, maybe another extra ten meters further than Ryan, and just got up the beach and won. It was the first time he'd lost in lost a nine-man race in maybe two or three years, and it was for me, it was unbelievable. Like I truly thought before that race best case scenario for me was kind of racing for like a third so um to to win that for me was just like I I remember like still walking around Aussies on that Sunday you know at at the beach after winning it just thinking you know I was 10 feet tall sort of thing but so that was probably that really pivotal moment in my career where I was like wow like even the big guys can be beaten um and on top of that is I know I have a known weakness of the swim leg, like my board leg's good and everything else. And I, you know, things go your way in surf and, and with Mother Nature, you can win a race on it, even your worst of days. And um, have, knowing that you have a weakness and something that you can make better is almost an even bigger advantage because you're like, well, your board leg and swim leg's already really good. Obviously, you can always make them better. But if you truly have a big weakness and you can still match it with those guys, well, then you're like, well, imagine if I can get myself to their level then you know surely I can come even further so that was probably uh for me the, the real sort of pivotal moment when I um really thought to myself that I got a lot of belief and 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 really um I guess got confidence as you know as a racer sometimes I see it time and time again guys that turn up to training and they're just bulletproof you know they just flog themselves time and time again but There's something that separates good races and the champions or good races and the best. And it must come down to just purely the thing between their ears, that that belief and that confidence. You look at some of the best guys on any sport. Everybody, when you start on the step and you get on your start line, has trained hard. Everybody's trained bloody hard. You're kidding yourself if you think in a professional sport that they haven't done the work. But for some reason, the cream always rises to the top. And in so many sports... It's the same guys on the podium over and over again. And, and for our sport, it hasn't really been different. You know, you look at um, the early years, the Hendys, the Mercers, all that. And then you went through a period of like Her- Kai Hurst and um, Zane Holmes. And then it was Shannon Eckstein for a huge period of time. And then um, Shannon's now recently retired. And, and and you've kind of got, you know, your five names over the last decade of obviously Shannon, but Kane Eckstein, Ali Day, Kendrick Louie, myself. Uh, Matt Bevan lacqua and you're starting to see now a bit of a transition with these um, other young kids coming through. Your Corey Taylor's, um, Ben Carberry's, you know, all these guys breaking through for for wins now, and um, I, I guess that sort of separates the people that train hard, do everything right, but they're just on race day don't pull it together, and the guys that'll go, wow, I've had a taste of a victory and I loved it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do it again and again.
0: It is so true. The mindset is is 50% of your racing. As you say, like everyone trains hard, everyone works hard, but it's the guys who know when to attack, know how to take those opportunities and know sort of at the same time that you only get this opportunity once a week or like you think that you've got all this career you can look down on. But once you get to a certain point, you're like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to win anything again. So it's like, I have to try and win this race. Like I have to win this yeah. next race. I have to win, try and do, like, win all these. And I think it was quite cool what Guy Andrews said when uh, I think it was Dwayne Thiers came up to him after Handy had won his third Ironman series title uh, in Uncle Toby's and in a row. And I think Dwayne said to him, Oh, like, Oh, how good is he got second? Like you can't, nobody can beat Handy, He's superhuman. And he just went, Oh, fuck that. Like I I can do this. Like I can win. Like I'm going to, I'm going to go train the off season. And he went uh, went away and trained really hard that next off season and ended up winning the next um, Uncle Toby's series. And it just shows that it is totally the mindset. Like he probably had the ability before that, but, to be able to create that new mindset where I go, okay, no, I'm, a, I'm allowed to win. I can allow myself to win. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. I'm allowed to take this victory. It's like, because you're looking at other athletes as well around you, You're like they're working hard. This guy's working hard. I know what he's done, but it's like, I have to go and take it from these guys. And that's something that you just have to learn. Like it's not necessarily instinctual, but you generally learn that over oh, time that you def- have to go out there and take it.
1: Very few are born with that sort of thing. It's exactly what you said. Some people um, just develop it through maybe one, one breakthrough moment, one breakthrough win or whatever it is. Other people just work so damn hard that they just don't demand anything less than winning from themselves. But without a doubt, like the best of the best, there's got to be an element of arrogance about them, whether it be um, openly sort of spoken about or, or subconsciously. But I look at some of the best athletes you know, and and I'm so fascinated by the the sports psych and mindset of so many different sports and athletes. You look, whether it be your Michael Jordan's, Michael Phelps, um, Kelly Slater, and more more relevant for us, like a same name like a Shannon Eckstein, mate. He was just like mentally bulletproof. The the shit that he could do, like even on his worst day, he was just such a threat. And as they're not openly arrogant people, but you can you can just tell they. They do not accept anything less than winning every time they do anything. You know, it's, it's a real sort of. It's almost like a psych out tactic, to be honest. If it's hard, to, you know, you've got to. If you're a young kid or you're uncertain of yourself, people like that will scare the shit out of you before the gun's even gone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's like that, that old thing. It's like arrogance can sometimes be mistaken as uh, that your own confidence. Like you think that you're being arrogant, but it's like, no, no, I'm just confident in myself. And then people are like, Oh, he's arrogant. He's got too much of an ego, but you have to have that. Like you can't, yeah. you can't go into a race thinking that, Oh, well, I don't deserve to win. These guys are better than me. You have to go in the race thinking I'm going to win. I'm better than these guys. And this is my time. And whether, whether or not that happens or not, you've got to put yourself your best foot forward and whether your best foot forward is in either your training or your mindset, You've got all those factors have to come together to make sure that you're going to be able to do your best and be able to win on the day. Because at the end of the day, nobody trains to come second. Like we're all we're all to to win. And so when did this moment like so, so you talk about winning that title and that became your moment to sort of change. But what was the moment that actually made you want to train to win that title? because you said like you weren't really that talented as a kid you were sort of running around you weren't really like you were a string bean you weren't that strong you weren't that solid you weren't good at swimming what made you want to start swimming what made you want to start beating these guys like we're talking about mindset here when did the mindset click over and go okay now I want to win yeah I mean that that wouldn't have come until after
1: that race obviously I got that win and call it chance or, or, or luck or whatever okay. you want to say it was almost. Like I had more holes in the game than a tennis racket going into that under-17 man title. For sure, like I worked hard, but by no means did I think that I, were, I was the hardest working kid. Um, I just, as I said, like when, when you are quite young like that, um, sometimes you can get a little bit more luck if you've got a real natural read on the surf or surf skills and things like that. Um, You can have a little bit more luck. Obviously, once you get into the higher ranks of open competition or professional series, there's nowhere to hide. Like, if you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And if you don't do the work, you're not going to get lucky. As an under-17, I I worked hard and I had a lot of natural talent. I think I won that under-17 Ironman title more or less purely on natural talent. Um, That then said... um, the next year under nineteens again i wasn 't bulletproof I still wasn 't great. Um, I would be sort of anywhere from the top four or five competitors There was probably you know five of us in the, in, in New South Wales that were sort of could go around and win a race at any time and then um, I, I made the move to to so it was my second and final year in the under nineteens and it 's kind of such a, um, a f- funny sort of moment in any Ironman's career that under 19 man title because it's not the be all and end all but more or less when you're going into the opens you're going to make a bit of a name for yourself if you are the junior Ironman title there always is so much hype around that junior Ironman title is this kid the next big di- real deal is he the next big thing and I, I moved to Northcliffe for that year the, my final year and I was training alongside some of the biggest names in the sport as I mentioned earlier and I think that certainly gave me an edge in terms of working hard and training hard but um, whilst i was still training hard and working hard i was still a young kid and i liked all the normal things of um, hanging with mates going to parties surfing and doing everything else so i was certainly working a lot harder than when i was in that under 17s but nowhere near enough to what would be accepted if i was in that top top level so um, it, again I went into that under-19 men final which was ended up um, being the, the ticket into the series but I went into that and I would say I was amongst four or five guys that could have won that day um, there was myself um, Hayden Allen Jack Hansen, James Stewart Jacob Lowell back um, there was yeah, a few guys that were re- Daniel Moody was another one sorry and yeah, all those guys were really, really solid and and all wanting to get that sort of 19 Ironman title win. And um, again, I managed to do it in a sprint finish up the beach um, against two guys, uh, the guys. And then that was for the first and only time they've ever done it. They gave uh, the under-19 Ironman title at Aussies a free shot into the Ironman series. So, um, again, life lesson learned was probably the best thing in the world for me, worst thing at the time, best thing for me. Um, in hindsight looking back at it now I won the under 19 Ironman title thought I was 10 feet tall full of confidence did not do anywhere near enough work in that first year in the opens and I got a good royal spanking of just how good those guys are in the big leagues and that was a massive make or break moment for me in my career of like right there's no mucking around now Um, you're at the end of the career of natural talent taking you when people say, oh, natural talent can only take you so hard and then hard work takes over and if you don't do that hard work, you get found out. That was the moment for me. So first year of um, the Nutri-Grain Man series and I finished 17th or 18th and um, yeah, just, just got um, exposed. There was nowhere to hide. The guys that were doing the work were at the front and me at the back was where I was. So um, that was when after that season... I remember just sort of having a bit of a conversation with my dad and, and um, I was like, right, well, I can't keep running around 17th forever because there's no money in getting 17th in sport. And I either moved back to Sydney and, and start um, a different lifestyle, a career, one probably behind a desk that I did not want to do, still don't want to do. And, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I actually made a big sort of life change. I moved to the Sunshine Coast, joined Michael King, who's um, one of the sport's biggest names for coaching and and as an athlete in his time as well. And we absolutely clashed heads. We butted heads because Michael King's work ethic is um, just incredible. He demands the absolute best from anyone who trains in his squad. And still, I was resisting as doing the hard work. I wanted the results, but I wasn't prepared to do the hard work yet. But he got me into shape, and and that very next year, again, I would have only been maybe 19 or 20 years old. I came out after having the second last in my first series, and I actually finished third in the Ironman series. I I won a round at Coulomb, round three or round four at Coulomb Beach, and then I finished the series third overall. Shannon Eckstein won the series, Zane Holmes was second, and I finished third, so two of the biggest names in the sport have had one of the biggest rivalries and I was standing there at the end of the series on the podium next to him. So I was kind of like, wow, this is, this is crazy. This is wild. And, you know, you talk about all these moments along the way and, and there's different moments always, but, um, you know, that that was a huge one for me where I was like, oh, this is my first almost people have to accept me or acknowledge at least that I've, I've um, you know, got some talent, of, I'm working hard now and that, you know, I may just be the real deal. So that's kind of like comforting and knowing. But as the story sort of unravels, that very next year I turned around and I finished 10th in the series. So, um, whilst I was showing a lot of talent, you're still working out a lot of things for yourself. As we sort of talked about before, um, consistency in racing, you've got to be consistent if you want to win an Ironman series. And I was at the point now after that third where I was like, well, all right my goal is to win a professional Ironman series title. That's It's good winning races, love winning races, but I want to win a title, that's the dream. And consistency, if you don't have that, you just won't win a title. And so yeah, I spent the next couple of years just on a roller coaster, more or less like my entire personality and racing, I was either, as I said before, I was either up there creating highlight reels with great races uh, or I was having the most horrific, forgettable races and I was at, at the absolute tail end of the race. So uh, I was all over the place and that was something that I had to iron out and work hard at.
0: Yeah, and there's so much to unpack there from what you've just said. But so let's go back to the under-19 Ironman title. You, you win that and you sort of say like you're coming out of like, I guess, your talent and, and your sort of um, hard work ethic is starting to come to fruition but then you get in the series and you probably don't work as hard. You get to North fifth. What was like, I guess as a young, so you're moving up to North fifth at 18, like, yeah, you're really young. You're going up there and you're training with all these massive names, of the sport, like the Zane Holmes, the Shannon X times, the Pierce, the like, and I, are you almost intimidated when you're getting to training? Like, is it, is it sort of a bit of a daunting experience getting there and training with these guys? Because every session they're like smashing themselves or they're trying to win the session. And that's something like is a trait from a lot of champions. So you're running around and you're sort of coming fourth or fifth in the sessions, you know? So is that something that was a benefit to you or was it a detriment to you sort of jumping in the deep end so early um, after winning that under-19 title?
1: Yeah, they're, they're some of the biggest things that'll make or break you in a career as we sort of spoke about, like constantly getting flattened by guys like that whilst it's really good for you to visually see where they're at and know that, right, they've got the target on their back and that's where you want to be and you keep working towards it. You see it again time and time in, in athletes. If that's all you know, all you know is finishing behind these guys. It's very hard to break through and break that mindset of, no, I don't want, like, I know I am here, but I don't want to be here. I want to be in front of them. A lot of people find it hard to actually break that mindset. It's just a force of habit. Um, humans, are, humans are a creature of adaptation. If you keep finishing behind someone, that's where you believe eventually you should be or you belong. And um, I think I was a just different cut of steel. You know, I just feel like I always knew that training alongside them, although I was young and, and wasn't better than them at that age, I knew that if I worked hard enough and, and kept grinding, that eventually I'd always want to be in front of them. I never just thought being next to them was good enough. So... Whilst that doesn't actually happen, you, whilst you don't, not many people got to actually beat Shannon many times. I always had that mindset of I believe I can, so um, I never went into a race thinking, oh, I want to finish behind Shannon, or I'm happy to finish behind Shannon, or or Pierce, or Kane, or Zane, any of those guys for that matter. Mm-hmm. I just um, you take it in your stride, and you need to soak up every bit of information and that you can from these guys, and you need to. I almost try and pick apart their race. And that was probably one of the biggest strengths that I've had. You look at every single athlete, right, across the board, past and present. I reckon I've trained or, or, or been coached by some of the biggest names and coaches in the sport. So I have a huge fountain of knowledge into everybody's racing and styles of training um, coaching, racing. I've done everything from, like, Jeremy Cotters and Naomi Floods at a very young age. And then I went to Northcliffe. I was coached by Pat O'Keefe. Um, I was training alongside Shannon, Zane, Kane, Keirce Leonard, um, all those guys. Then I went to the Sunshine Coast and I was coached by Michael King, incredible coach. I was then being training alongside Dean Mercer, Tim Peach, Reese Drury, all these sorts of guys. And then I sort of went back to Currow and I had you know, a lot more freedom myself down there. And I was training with Barry Newman, who was a friend of Leach's. And so like... I got a lot of that sort of knowledge and it was very much me and Bevy one on one, but this is obviously a lot further down the track, but more or less like a lot of guys like say Bevy for the huge part of his career has trained with me and maybe a couple of others, like whether it be Ali Day and Whitey and Malula Bar and stuff like that. And and this and that, whereas I feel like in comparatively to a lot of the other athletes, whether that I'm racing against now, whether it be Bevy, Kendrick, Kane, or, um, Ali Day, I've trained with a huge diversity of the best of the best athletes over a long period of time and I've been with some of the, the biggest names of coaching as well. You've had O'Keefe, Michael Kings, you Barry Newmans and now with Kev Morrison, like four very different coaches in all their right mind but you can always absorb new uh, new knowledge and take out strengths and weaknesses from everyone's racing and coaching and and things like that. So Um, I know a lot of people probably sit back and I come across and I play the stupid funny guy or whatever I am. I think I'm funny anyway. But I I play that sort of character and stuff. I'm very, very much always like analysing people and I don't share that information. Why would I share that information? It's mine. That's my my golden ace, you know. So I'm always sort of like picking apart the weight, the strategy and why people race and how they race, what makes them a better racer. Um, some guys thrive on confidence. Guys like um, Kendrick and Shannon and Bevy, you don't want them like winning training or winning races because when they get that confidence, they just it just grows and grows and compounds. And guys like Ali, you know, you don't want to be with him in the middle of a race. You want to say be ahead of him because he's got such a big ticker, such a big tank. He comes home um, so fast. You definitely don't want to let him in front of you in the middle of a, a long race or anything because he doesn't slow down. So there's so many factors and assets of different different athletes and and styles of racing that i've always um sort of like thinking about when i'm in a race you know i'm focusing on myself and what i can do but i'm also very aware of who's around me what legs coming up and um when when certain athletes are going to have a crack or, or have a go and i think that's probably one of the biggest strengths that i have
0: yeah, it's so true. You've really got to learn who's in your race, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, and be able to use that to your advantage when you are in competition. And it sounds like you've learned your competition as well as you can. And you're constantly studying, you're constantly trying to learn. And that's what makes, it helps make you a, a great athlete. Um, but we go back to um, obviously moving to North 5th. You finish 17th. You have the decision with your dad to to move up to Mool-Aid Bar, You speak to Michael King and you sort of see your career really evolve from there. You're going into a training environment that's probably a little bit different. you probably, um, I don't know, it's more of a hard work ethic. As you said, Michael King doesn't really allow you to not um, give a full 100% to his program. How influential was that part of your um, career to, into making who you are as an athlete today? Because you get your first win in that year as well at Coulomb. You, you, um, you get on the podium with two of your idols, Shannon and Zane you're sort of really establishing yourself that year. You're training with obviously Dean and, and Tim Peach and Reese Durie. Like these guys are all like very successful athletes in their own right. How important was that year to sort of cementing you? And why was it so different to the, the first year that you moved away from home?
1: Yeah. Um, I think taking away what I learned from Michael King and that transition in Malula was um, it was everything I didn't want to do. Um, it was everything I didn't want to do. You look at Malulabar as a beach; it's dead flat. There's no waves. There's never surf. I was always the guy that would love training if the surf is big and catching waves and stuff like that. You look at Michael King's program; it is huge volume, huge weeks, lots of running, lots of ski paddling, lots of long board endurance. Just he like he he prides himself on building a huge. Base foundation in pre-season or in winter, so that in summer you've got a huge fitness level and and you just you're never running out of um, fitness in the back end of a race. Probably almost too much. Like we did so much volume and with such a big strong squad that we had, man, we almost killed ourselves. We ran ourselves into the ground over winter. I feel like a lot of the guys um, like yourself, you know, when you're down in Northcliffe and, and on the Gold Coast. You guys would look at the the amount of volume and whatever we were doing, whereas you guys were like, oh, we don't need to do that much. We'll be more specific and we'll structure it. Whereas Kingy was very much like long, hard, flat sessions, heaps of volume, heaps of Ks. And that wasn't anything of me at all as an athlete. You know, I was starting to get a bigger, um, heavier, stronger... More power-based or skill-based athlete, and I was going into a program that was designed for a K nextine or an Alley Day or, or Bevy, with, you know, like skinny, small, big endurance bodies, and and just you know they've got that. It's just a different style of racing and training. So I think what I can take from Kingy's program is um, like like in life, that was my apprenticeship, although I had achieved a, a fair amount or reasonable amount of success prior to moving to the Sunshine Coast when I actually moved to the the Sunshine Coast with Kingy I feel like that was the start of my apprenticeship that was where you go right you have to do for really hard non muck around years like all life like all trades like all apprenticeship so that you can then run on the back of that for the rest of your career and, and I feel like Shannon did more or less similar when he was very young with Surface Paradise running around chasing Trevor Hendy and Claydo and huge names in the sport. A lot of those guys got to do an apprenticeship that four really hard years that your results were all over the place. Maybe consistency wasn't good, but you were super fit. You just got it. You built a really hardened edge about yourself, like a a no bullshit edge. You know, you could be at 100% and you'd be terrifying when you're racing. And if you're at, you know, 50% and you're sick or slightly injured or whatever, you've just got that mental sort of hard-ass attitude about you, that you've done the hard work, you know how to really hurt yourself and to not give up, and that even on your worst day, you can still bring one of your best results. So for me, the, the, the monumental kingy moment was he made me do the, the work that I didn't want to do but I knew I had to do, and he just installed that sort of hard-ass edge about me that, like, Killer sort of, I can push myself as far, if not far further than than some of these other athletes. Just on the back of, as I talked about before, creatures are being uh, humans are a creature of adaptation. If you just keep doing these mental crazy hard sessions over and over again, it just becomes routine. You get out into a race and your back's up against the wall and you're all exhausted. You almost become comfortable or relaxed because you're like, I've been here before. This is my happy place. Like I've trained hard. I can go at this and keep going at this. Whereas you see other guys who cut corners or don't work as hard, when they get to that really yucky, uncomfortable place, that's when they either make a mistake or they go missing.
0: From the sound of the thing, it sounds like at Lulubai you got really hardened as an athlete. It was like building on your mental game because a lot of people say that um, when you're going into race, your confidence comes from your training and being up at Moolaba and doing these crazy weeks, high volume racing um, against like your main competitors as well. Now it's like Ali and Kendrick, and these guys are really pushing it and Bevy as well constantly pushing you to get into those uncomfortable places and, and realizing that you can get up the next day and, and do it again and every session you go to is essentially a race because you're as you were saying before you didn't want these guys to finish the session in front of you because that's when their confidence built and you had to race them on the weekend as well so there's exactly. so much yeah. mind games and it's constant mind games as well and you just it, it, it's either exhausting for you or you embrace it and you get on with it and it sounds like it's something that you really grabbed hold of and used to your advantage, especially in that first year. Now, what other like, things did you learn there? Like, I know that at Malulabar, they had a very, very strong program. You were getting a lot of um, medals, I guess, at Aussies and at Worlds. Like, you were doing all these different type of events. Was there a camaraderie there as well that really helped build you? Like, were you, Was it like a team thing, like it, and everyone went to sessions, or was it very individual still?
1: At, at uh, Malulabar, was that so? Yeah. Yeah, very... Yeah, we we had a really good squad there for a number of years at Kingy. Um, You kind of feel so isolated on the Sunshine Coast, to be honest, like especially at that time too, you know. It's a pretty sort of quiet, cruisy little country town, Mooloolaba. Um, It's obviously a little bit more busy now, but at the time it was very much, it felt like that for me anyway, coming from Sydney my whole life in Manly and then to the Gold Coast. Certainly the Sunny Coast to me felt like just a permanent training ground. Every day was training eat, breathe, sleep, um, Ironman racing. So I was very fortunate, or we were all very fortunate, to have a pretty, um, what developed into probably one of the most crazy squads, actually, in terms of Ironman talent. Looking back at it now, um, I started off there We being sort of the new kid in the block. and, And as I said, you had Dean Mercer, Tim Peach, and Jack Hansen were there. And then I moved to Mooloola Bar. And then in time... Ali Day joined, massive name, Uh, Hayden White joined, Josh Minogue, Cam Cole, Matt Bevilacqua, Kendrick Louie, Alex Tibbetts. Um, Mm. You know, I just mentioned a number of names, like there's a lot of sort of Australian titles and world medals and, and series wins and gold wins and everything in that group alone, that's going back almost a decade ago you know so a long time ago now some of those guys are very much retired and moved on some still very heavily involved in the sport or even still racing but they were the names that we were sort of like breakfast lunch and dinner training alongside every you know two three sessions a day so um as you sort of said yeah the mind games were crazy because every session you're trying to win but it's not for everyone. You can burn yourself out about all that as well. Um, there were definitely periods where I would just run myself into the ground. I'd be terrible. I'd have to have time off. And you're trying to work out your body and you're watching Ali Day or watching Bevy. And you, what you want to do and what you should be doing is, like, a, a big head game, as you know. Like, the hardest thing, I think, for almost athletes is working out who they are as an athlete and trying to work that out as quickly as possible mm. because... I'm telling you right now, like, if I tried to train like Ali Day does, I would end up in a coffin for sure. Um, he, You know, he's just a different athlete, different style of athlete in every sense of the word. Me doing his program would not work for me at all. But when you're training alongside those guys, it's very hard as an athlete to sort of put your blinkers on and go, no, 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 they're going hard today, but I need to back it out. I need to focus on um, quality over quantity. I need to get, um, you know, it's Tuesdays, Wednesday or Thursday. Maybe I need to go 80% here so that I can make sure I get 100% for the Ironman session on Saturday, which is the key focus for the week. So um, the hardest thing is trying to work out who you are as an athlete, what your limits are, and doing the best by you. And then, you know, obviously you clash with coaches and you're clashing with athletes from time to time. Kingy wants you to do the volume and every single session and that. And you're debating with him over, like, Oh, let me sleep in two mornings a week, mate. So <laughs> me, me and King used to have some epic sort of like battles and stuff like that. But I think you, you kind of come to an agreement of, yeah, like working out who you are as an athlete and the coach, once they understand that, you understand that, then you can actually start to get the best out of yourself. So as I sort of said before, that Malulabar period was the apprenticeship period. And I I got everything that I'm forever thankful for out of Kingi and that time at Malulaba and being in that squad, very, very fortunate. It wasn't until I probably later in my career started to move down to Karawa and had a lot more power and control over myself as an athlete and structuring my own sessions where I really started to reap the rewards. I was far more consistent, went on to win you know, an Man series title and um, I think in the last five years or six years I've been on the podium four times so as I sort of said it's the hard work you did in the apprenticeship that you you reap later in life but um, yeah, there's just so many lessons you learn along the way and certainly like 14 years for me whilst it feels like a lifetime like there's been some of the biggest highs and the lowest lows in that time. There's been times where I've wanted to quit the sport. There's been times where I'm winning races and I think that I'm bulletproof. But at the end of the day, I think nothing will give you more motivation than when you've really, truly hit rock bottom. That's where like, you learn the most about yourself. You learn the most honest truths about what you want to do, how hard you're prepared to work for it. And, um, I think, yeah, I've had some of the biggest lows for sure as well, whether it be sickness, injury, or just flat out not good enough or not getting the results I wanted. Sometimes I've been at my absolute best in terms of fitness and still had terrible results. That's even more disheartening, you know? So you've got to sort of, yeah, some of the biggest lows actually give you the biggest motivation that you'll ever get in your career and, and all these things kind of, kind of just... Um, it's one roller rollercoaster of, of craziness being an athlete
0: and, yeah... There are so many learnings that have to happen. And you speak about clashing with coaches and, and that's sort of part and parcel because it actually means that you're caring about what you're doing. Like I know I clash with a lot of coaches and since 2015, I, I really, I coach myself. I've been able to, to like take all these learnings that I've had from different coaches and actually make them into the athlete I, I am today. And I think that's what you had when you went to Karawa. You sort of had Barry Newman who sort of really understood athlete and sort of facilitated what their needs were a little bit more whereas the group style programming is sometimes a really hard thing to be a part of because if you've got 10 different athletes who are all very very elite you can't necessarily train all the same way because they're very different athletes and even though you're working on weaknesses you're sort of just working on a, a standard line and yes you're still going to get hard and, and create Really good results and that type of thing, but maybe you're not doing exactly the right things for the particular athlete to performing at the right time, and I think that's what you're speaking about. Maybe clashing with different coaches because that's just inevitably going to happen. But coming into so you, you still have a lot of success at Moora You're very very consistent. Like in 2008, uh, so 2009 you finished third, tenth. Uh, 2010 you get tenth, yet fourth. Um, you get a second, and then you're sort of moving down to Karawa. What, was, what, what instituted the move down to Karawa then, and what sort of successes did you have from there?
1: Yeah, so I think um, well I, I'd had a good run I'd had a good stint at malulaba and with Kingi. I think I did six years up there, and um, as I said, like forever thankful for everything that he did um, for me and, and, and I, I guess even still now i'm reaping the rewards of those years that I did with Kingi so um, I think it was just all good things come to an end, you know, like we'd had it so good for so long and um nothing can last forever sort of style thing. Malulabar made a change in direction with where they wanted to go as a club and, and surf Sports and you know, Kingy Kingy for one reason or another uh, moved on down and and um went to Currumbin. And, and that was also when I made a, a move to go to Karawa. It was a yeah. pretty weird move at that time when I first moved to um, Cara, I'd just finished I think 2010-11 um, I finished second in the Ironman series that was the year I did with the the pink hair and stuff and um, I was kind of like yeah I felt I was in a really good part of my career and then I had to you know there's so much uncertainty whilst I'd learned so much in Kingy I was still freaking out about leaving him it's kind of like you know you've got to leave the nest you've got to go out on your own and be a big boy now and um, use all those lessons that you've made over the years and you know, use it to your advantage and, and and come to life with it. So an opportunity came, came to me to, to go to Karawa. I was very, I was very unlucky in that just that year or the same year that I first went to Karawa, Kai Hurst had just left or retired from America's Cup. So I was a bummer that I wasn't going to get to train alongside him after having raced him for so many years and him being one of the most incredible athletes our sports ever seen. Um, so I went there and it was. You, you were in the club as well, but you were very much doing a lot of ocean ski paddling, and maybe even you just started sort of almost your sub career around 2011 or 12, sort of thing, or it was just kicking off maybe.
0: Yeah, kayaking, so like, ocean ski at that stage, yeah. Kayaking, ocean
1: ski. Like it was a small squad at that time at Karawa, so it was a bit of a bald move for me to go from that big, amazing setup that we had at Mamulabad down to Karawa. And um, yeah, I was very lucky and fortunate to sort of get on the phone to Bevy and obviously I've been living with him for years and sort of say, hey, come down to Curra or join me. We can do this together. And, um, you know, we, we, we just made it work. We both were as hungry and motivated as each other. And um, we went to Curra and, and it just grew and blossomed and the whole surf sports program over, I did five years at Curra, which just recently came to an end, but Again, when I first went to Karawa, um, they just had this really not good, solid passion of being a dominant um, surf sports club. And, you know, they had such a great history, such a great, rich history through the club. You know, champions like Kai Hurst and Hayley Bader had been there prior to me. You were also at the club there. There's so many sort of athletes come and gone. And, and Plato was also coaching there prior to me getting there. And, and then they just started to really try and, give it a good crack. And um, yeah, I I guess um, it was a scary move, but I loved it. It was, it was, it was the perfect move for me at that stage in my career. And um, yeah, five years later at Carrara, I've just, um, that's all come to an end now and I've made the move back to Northbridge. So, you know, new chapter in the life, as we sort of spoke about before, um, sometimes change, change is the best thing you can do for an athlete. You try and, Reignite the flame and and give yourself new motivation. What better motivation for me than moving to Northcliffe, one of the most dominant and strong clubs in the world? Um, Unarguably, you know, you look at all their results of the world and and state and Australian level over a number over a decade now. They just they've just got a winning formula. So, what better way for me at the end of my career or getting close towards end of my career than to to finish up at the club that I actually kicked off. professional career as well i find that kind of symbolic and unique as well
0: yeah and we'll and we'll definitely get up to the north fifth uh phase of your career now that you're all starting but i think you must have moved down to karawa in about 2014 2015 because that was the years that i was there and you sort of said you did five years there at karawa um i know you had successes you're starting to do some different things as well at this stage like you went over to the molokai to Wahoo paddleboard championships in 2014 and you won it there. You probably raced a few years prior to that. You had a couple of thirds. What was it about that stage of your career where you started to try and do things differently? Like you stepped out of your comfort zone. You're talking about becoming a big boy. You've done your apprenticeship and now you're chasing these different goals. Like you're obviously having still having very consistent results on the nutri Ironman series, but in the off season, you were going off and doing these different events. What was the motivation behind that?
1: Um, to be honest, it was, it was social media, it was athletes, it was sport as a whole, it was evolving, it was changing. Um, when I first came into professional racing, sponsors would line up and all they'd want you to do is wear their product, use their product, race in their product, put stickers on boards and skis, and that was more or less the extent of it. Technology and social media um, evolved sports and athletes and ambassadors and marketing, turned marketing into a whole different game. And, Athletes all of a sudden had to speak on camera. They had to sell a product. You couldn't just put on a pair of goggles or or race in a pair of boardies or on a surf craft and that was enough. You had to go out and sell that product to your followers, to your engaged followers. And and all athletes have a very niche, unique um, following of people that whether they believe it or not, sometimes you become numb to it. People are watching your every move on Facebooks, Instagrams and social medias. Watching what you're wearing, the things you're doing, the things you're saying, you're reading, um, your training techniques, all these things. People are always out there watching and stuff and that's what um, more or less began my transition um, into being a 12 months of the year athlete versus a surf life saving Ironman over five or six months of the year. Racing in the Nutri-Grain Ironman series was good, but I had to make myself a marketing um, value to a brand over 12 months of the year, not just six. So I started to well, sign... I'd been with nutri since 2008 or 2009. I've had about a 12 or 13-year partnership with nutri I signed with Red Bull in 2011 and still with them now. And, um, I mean, you know, they've been two of the biggest companies I know people sort of sit there and they plug a company or whatever it is but it's like without them I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about doing this I wouldn't you know what I mean that's just if you don't have those brands and partners that support you or allow you to do what you do you just it doesn't happen so um, I started through partnering with Nutrigains and Red Bulls and and the other partners that I've been very fortunate to have I started to go off and compete in events like the Molokai Toahu World Paddleboard Championships. I was going over to Tahiti and doing their Iron Mana or Water Mana festivals. I was going to Dana Beach um, in California there and doing the ISA Games. I was doing the, the oh, sorry, PPG, the Pacific Paddle Games in Dana Point there. I was doing the ISA Games in um, for Australia and in Fiji and things like that. Um, I've been over to Malaysia the last couple of years and done events with Reebok, um, running sort of like endurance running, cross swimming, cross paddle boarding. That's kind of that niche market I sit in. Um, through doing all those, it's kept me very active. It's kept me very busy. It's probably... Helped me burn the candle at both ends to a degree maybe in my off seasons I didn't get to rest as much as some of my competitors and other athletes have but I've been able to retain sponsorships and, and work with some of the biggest companies and brands in the world so you know you've got to take the good with the bad and and for me um whilst I love Ironman racing staying active staying fit and doing other sports or other events actually just mentally gave me um an opportunity to travel, an opportunity to race and stay fit, an opportunity to keep my profile relevant. But it was actually what I actually enjoyed doing, and um, I was actually just sort of saying to you before, this is the first year where I actually sort of notably was starting to feel the pinches of age, and and a big couple of you know five or six huge years of um, racing here in summer and then racing overseas in winter. was starting to feel the burn of that and I was like okay maybe this winter I'm going to stay at home and cruise and then um, we entered into the world's most phenomenal coronavirus thing that just blew everyone's plans apart but it almost gave me a forced rest so that element of it I really enjoyed because um, I was already starting to commit to events overseas racing, I was really excited about heading over to Molokai and do the ocean ski race with the Shore Partners guys. That was really exciting. I was looking forward to that. And and even looking at doing an ocean ski event in um, Mauritius with the Shore Partners guys. So there was already, I was just naturally, because I enjoy doing these things, I was starting to commit to it. But yeah. when I get to this stage in my career, I have to probably be a little bit more um, body conscious and and give myself the time mentally and physically to to rest, recover, and repair so that when I come out this summer racing, I'm going to beat my absolute best and and, um, hopefully leave no stone unturned
0: but it's really important to be able to mix things up and step outside the comfort zone. Like you, you're, you're racing in your professional series over the summer, you're doing six months of Ironman racing, but sometimes it's nice to actually step away from that scene, step away from that community and actually go and do different things. And does it, does it also keep your mind fresh and relaxed and sort of keep you fit? Cause I know with training, you've got to kind of stay fit without doing the same things because otherwise you kind of burn yourself out like you're speaking about, but, because you're doing different activities, you're not really burning yourself out. And that's something that I've tried to do throughout my career is always do something different. Like whatever gets me out of bed in the morning is the, the training session that I'm going to do. You don't just necessarily have to do your strict um, regime, but I know you found a really good balance with that. Like I know you like to relax, you like to have fun, but you're also a very, very determined trainer when, it, when you start your season, you start your racing season, you don't have a beer for like a certain period of time, like you're very, very focused. How important is that aspect of racing, training, and life balance? And how have you formulated your own balance for your training?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Again, it's all trial and error. Nobody gets that right the first time. Um, oh, there's been so many times where you're like, um, highs and lows through the career. Um, I, I found actually, funny enough, one of the biggest lows for motivation I had actually come, came after winning the 2017 Man series because I'd spent at the time a decade in a series 10 times trying to win that um failed failed or came so close so many times and then had injuries sickness um fell short by just points from winning a series and then after that when you finally achieve that i wanted to come back and back up and you know go back to back titles that was my goal but something inside me was like oh took 10 years to do you finally done that and then now it's like now you want to just do it all over again to try and win that again like you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's hard. So um trying to juggle that balance of, 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 training, racing, consistency and life at the same time, you've got to live a normal life. You've got to catch up with mates, go out, have a few beers or, you know, invest time into relationships or, you know, if you've got a girlfriend, it's, I've had a few girlfriends. So it's, it's, um it's hard to be like, you know, it's very selfish being an, an athlete and, You know, you've got to find the right girlfriend. You've got to find... Everything's got a kind of balance in moderation, I think. You can't have one component of your life just at 100 and then everything else will just... the, The scales are thrown out. If you're putting your whole life and all your focus into training, I can guarantee your social life or relationships or, you know, sponsors and stuff like that will take a hit. You have to find that happy medium of everything. And I think that's been something that I've more or less tried to keep at a balance through, through my career. Certainly like you said, when I was younger and certainly when I first moved up with Kingy, he just had a no drinking, no party sort of attitude at all. And I would go months and months and months, like without going out or without a beer in, in training because, you know, I just believed that I, you know, I wanted to win. I wanted to win. I wanted to win so bad, but, um, there can only ever be one winner in a race. And if you do all that work and you don't win, does that then, is that the catalyst that just sends you bananas and you completely quit the sport? So it's like, you've got to like keep a good, healthy check on everything so that you, you know, when you do have your bad days, whether it be bad training, bad racing results, bad sponsors, bad relationship, if that does, you know, have, have a tough week or whatever, it's not the catalyst to the end of your whole life. It is like, oh, everything's in good check. Maybe I can work on that and get it back to healthy again. But um, if you have everything well balanced, I feel like, you know, it doesn't implode your entire life. You have a pretty good sense of um, reality from like, you know, fairy tale.
0: It's coming down to finding what's important and actually experiencing your life and, and embracing different challenges and, and things and not putting too much pressure on one thing because sometimes that can be a detriment to your performance and you're not going to be able sure. to perform the way that you want to do. So you've had very consistent results over the past, let's say, 14 years in the Ironman series you've had. You had your first win at Coolm back in 2009, I think it was, Then you have your first series win nearly 10 years later in 2016-17. These are sort of two major highlights. And what, what was it like winning your first race? And what was it like winning your first series after such a long period of time? Like, I know you said you come but after that, that series win, you're like, oh, it was terrible, it was tiring, all that sort of stuff. But it was obviously really exciting. And I've actually got, I think I've got the footage here as well of you coming across the finish line, coming down to the final Y, 16 17, Shannon next time, Matt Poole, and you run, you run him up the beach and you, and you win your first series
1: yeah I mean I couldn't really pick the two apart what was more memorable I mean obviously I'd say the Ironman series title because it's as far as I'm concerned it's the biggest thing in the sport it certainly is for me it's the biggest thing in the sport Um, but winning your first race that's that's that real um, sorry um, like true realisation that for years and years of hard work that's um, that's the kind of breaking moment but you finally cracked it but yeah this for me was just um insane like you if you know the history of the sport you know the rivalry between me and shannon if you knew how that this played out um and to come down to what it was it's just insane you could not script a better finish you know it was my 10th year in the series and i was and i was trying i was going for my first series win this was actually yep. Shannon's 10th title. He was, this day, he had more or less said leading into this week or the, the final round, he said, if I win this weekend's title, that'll be my 10th title and I'm retiring, I'll leave the sport. And everyone was like, wow, like, he's, Shannon's going to retire because everyone was so confident he'd win. And, um, you know, it was my 10th year in the series and I still hadn't won a, won a series title. So I was like, oh, this is hard, you know. And after the going into the final race of the, the final weekend, Me and Shannon were locked on point score. We were dead tired and um, going into the final race, which was an Eliminator and Shannon just, that's his format. He's so consistent with Eliminators. It's just like, oh, this is scripted for Shannon again. Like, you know, when's it going to be my time? You're asking yourself all these types of questions. And um, yeah, literally going into the the first two races of the Eliminator, I just raced terribly and Shannon was as usual, so consistent and up the front the third and final race, the one for the title, the one for the money, and bang, gun goes. We both get out the back first and second on the ski, and I'm like, oh my God, this is gonna come down to the wire. I actually managed to get away from him in the swim. I got a little wave and, um, you know, tiny bit in front of him. We went out into the board leg, and I was leading, had about 10, 15 meters on him, coming back into the shore. All I had to do was get down this wave on the board, and I won my first title. And I remember on the top of it, I could hear the whole crowd. I could see everyone on North Kanala, like, holding their breath. And I just fell off the back of this wave. I didn't get down it. And I could, like, hear everyone just go, oh. I was like, oh, that's not good. That's not good. And I turned around and Shannon and Natalie Day are on the next wave. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to go down to a sprint finish. And sure enough, we picked up the wave of coming in. I was just like, mate, I've never, you know, I backed myself up the beach pretty quick and I'm like, this is the one time that I don't want to trip over or stuff up a sprint finish. If I've ever won a sprint finish, this is it. And Shannon gets up all of a sudden before me and I'm like a foot taller than him and I'm like, oh, that's that's not a good start. Like he's already up and running and um, he we were just shoulder to shoulder at the start and I was like, oh, wow, I'm going to lose this one. And um, I just like remember it being like, it felt like it was an eternity to that first turning boy and I just ended up edging in front of him, turned around. And, um, yeah, went on to win, win it in a sprint finish, beating him by, you know, a couple of metres and one point to win my first title. And um, he missed out on his 10th. So it was, pretty, um, it was pretty weird fairy tale or scripts to, to sort of um, have it go down for your first title for sure.
0: And how do you get into the mindset to be able to do that. Cause I know you're a headphones guy. You you walk around, you probably don't speak to too many people before you compete. And you've you've got to, you've got to control all that energy because if you don't, you lose before you even start because you waste all the energy thinking about the race. And that's sort of a real pinnacle moment in your career. Like that's a moment that you wanted to be in for 10 years since you started the series and and you had to make it happen. You had to be clutch that term that a lot of people use for these type of moments and you make it happen it's it's just an incredible sort of culmination of so many years of hard work so many years of sacrifices from yourself from your family from your friends so much commitment from your sponsors and it's like a it's just like this this beacon of your career essentially all coming together and it's sort of allowing yourself to be able to take that victory and you're making sure that you don't make those mistakes how do you get yourself into that mindset to be able to do that
1: yeah, uh that's another one that's just been trialed and errored through <laughs> over a decade of, of racing, you know. When you're young, you used to like, you know, listen to that real psych up pump up music, you used to like run around, get your heart rate up, do everything else. And then I've actually found that for my style of racing, I'm the polar opposite to that. Um, I've done a lot of work with sports psychologists over the years and things like that. And I've actually always found that the more relaxed I am, the more like um, centered and, and clear I'm thinking, I actually make far better decisions. Like if I'm listening to the crazy music and, you know, beat my chest and running around, I'm, um, I'm all over the place. You make silly mistakes and I'm just, I get nervous. I get jittery because everything's, you know, you've got blood running through your arms, legs, everything. It's too much and again I learnt that the hard way that was years and years of probably doing that style of um, psyching up before a a, a race or an event I'm actually the complete opposite now Like as you said I am a headphones guy most of the time I actually walk around with my headphones in and I I either don't have music playing definitely for the most part of it, I just put them in so I don't have to talk to other people because I just want to stay calm, stay focused, think about my process, I'm not thinking about the race I'm just thinking about what's next, is it you know, put put my put my jammers on and, and go for a swim or a warm up. Is it go down and look at the surf? Depending on is it time to have a have some um, you know electrolytes and Red Bulls have have a gel, whatever it is. You know, I'm just going through my process of what works for me. And if I'm running around and frantic, I'm 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 missing steps along the way. So um, certainly the playlist, my race day playlist is just like weird it's just like old school like 80s 90s like super cruisy like old school music um i love that sort of stuff it's actually funny bevy hates my style of music like i put on my playlist and stuff and he's like you know the young kid he's like oh my god like what do you listen to <laughs> it's pretty funny but um yeah like i i just when I listen to that sort of music, it's just slow and it's relaxing, and I'm focusing on deep breathing and everything else. I'm almost trying to get myself to that meditative, meditative state, sort of thing, before a race. Because when the gun goes, adrenaline's going to kick in no matter what, and I'm going to go like a full at the gate. I don't need to be there before the race or before the gun goes. I want to try and stay relaxed. So, um, yeah, like when you're coming to a moment like that in that 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 style of a race, it's exactly that, like the hardest time in the world to be relaxed or to, to calm yourself down but it's probably the most important time so I had a few processes and stuff like that breathing like obviously in the sprint finish you don't really get much of a time but I can remember as that wave was coming towards me and I saw Shannon Danali on it I remember taking two really deep breaths in through my nose out through my mouth just trying to lower my heart rate trying to calm myself down so that I wouldn't make a silly mistake because I knew that my heart rate would be going a million miles an hour. So um, when I was on that wave, rather than looking at the finish line, I was looking at the depth of the water where I was going to hop off my board exactly where I wanted to step. Make sure I didn't trip, didn't hop off too early, didn't hop off too late and gave myself the best shot of getting up the beach. And... Um, you're trying to micromanage or micro break down these, these moments in a race, especially in the clutch situation where it's like all on the line and there's so much going through your, your mind. You know, like Shannon wants this more than ever. He's going for his 10th title and he wants to retire. You're going for your 10th. There's a crowd going wild, like commentators streaming, people on the beach, whatever else, cameras in your face filming you. Like there's a lot going on when all you're trying to do is put blinkers on and and get to one point on that run, which is that um, you know big game thing. You turn right, and from there it's the the, the home straight to the finish line. So um, yeah, you're trying to micromanage and block everything out, and, and um, relaxation is the key for that. So yeah, as you sort of said, I, for me, I just I listen to music, or I just put them in, so I, I I can sort of avoid having have all those lengthy conversations with people on beach during race day. Happy to have those conversations after the race, or the day before, or whenever, any other time, but when you're there to race, you're there to do a job, and I need to do the job right, so I need to go to my process, which I've built out, and tweaked, and finalized over years of trial and error. Um, same thing as, as I sort of said, finding that winning mentality between your ears, or finding your race day process is also the same thing. It's, the earlier you find it, the better it is, because you're gonna have a longer career, But if the later you work it out or piece it all together, it takes a while to get it right for sure. As I said, I've done a lot of things that didn't work. And, you know, whether it be different drinks or food or breakfasts or sleep patterns or styles of music, whatever that be, done it it all over 14 years, I can
0: assure you. And you've got to make sure that you're doing it all right when it counts. But the, the thing that I love about that moment is that there's an opportunity there, you miss the wave, and then you have to take those two deep breaths to calm yourself down and then attack the next opportunity, which is really hard to do. Like you've given your whole day, it's eliminated format. It's probably four or five races. You're down to that final moment. And you could have, necess- like maybe if you like was a little bit left, a little bit right. And you could have been, had a defeatist attitude at that point, went right. Oh, I've missed it. Like my opportunity's done. Like I've been working so hard. These guys are going to catch me. But instead you, you really like you took the deep breaths, you relaxed, you calmed down and then you waited for that next opportunity because you knew you could back yourself up the beach which is one of your strongest things that you have in your career, like watching your race and getting to that can first or getting to that mark first before you turn to the finish shoot. Yeah, that's what I, I guess I was really impressed with that, that, that that's how it panned out and you were able to forget about what happened and you just, that's what I try and teach all my athletes that I have as well. It's like you forget about whatever happened it didn't happen. You just now you do your best race from there and that's what you were able to do so well. So it was pretty cool to see.
1: Yeah, I think, I think I had that result gone a different direction, there was a time and place to, to, to work that out or, or to really reflect on that and be super devastated. But it was probably that <laughs> night, night at the pub when you're having a couple of beers to go, wow, I really wish I got down that wave. So um, the thing is exactly as you said, don't dwell on it when there's still an opportunity <laughs> present. Your time to dwell on it or be upset when there's no more chances races is one and done and you're at home having a shower. That's your time to reflect on it. You cannot, in a race, if something doesn't go right, dwell on it. You need to take it in, accept the pro- like, you know, adjust your plan, change, accept the process, and then execute and do that quickly. As you said, yes, I missed the wave, but that wasn't my last opportunity. I still had another opportunity. And I still had that wave coming and I still had a chance to go, had I lost that opportunity, race is done. Then I can be as upset and pissed off as I'd like in my own time off the beach. But certainly whilst the race is still alive and going, you always have to, um, yeah, just accept the process and, and, and make do with what you got.
0: Yeah, well, you did it really well at that time. And I'm sure there's been instances in your career where it probably hasn't gone your way and it's gone the other way. So it's always nice to have one yeah. um, on your side. What, um, what is, like, probably the, one of the, the biggest failures of your career, would you say? Is there any failures or would you say they're all just key learning moments?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, failures are such a, sh- a hard word, isn't it? Like, I, you look at them more as lessons. Certainly, you've had some really shit or hard lessons. Um, one, of the, one of the probably hardest or worst lessons I've ever had came from probably the second best result of my career, the year that I had the pink hair and finished second in the Ironman series, actually, Finished second to Shannon by two points. Um, so almost like more or less the same sort of story. Did the same thing. Opened up the the Ironman series really strong with a third at Kurumbin. Um I went to the second race. Second round, we raced at Bondi Beach. And I actually won on Bondi Beach. And that night was young. I was 2010, 11. So maybe I was like 22 years old or something. We went out and partied all night at Bondi because I'd won. And I ended up getting really sick. And um, we had the third round of the series two weeks later at Coolum. And I was leading the series at the time. I had the black leaders jersey on. And we raced at Coolum. It was dead flat, endurance race. And I had the worst sort of like um, just cold. I remember just the whole week. I didn't even train. I was exhausted. I was tired, getting out of bed. And then obviously the stress on top of that, like had it been any other week, you'd probably get over a cold in three four days but because all I was thinking about was I'm leading the Ironman series and I'm going into an endurance race this weekend like this is not ideal preparation as far as tapers and, and getting race ready is and I went to Coolham and I ended up getting like a tenth which wasn't a terrible result but obviously it was terrible giving I was leading the series and I actually collapsed over the finish line I remember running the whole day I swear I was just racing on adrenaline because I was just so scared that I'd just ruined the series and I was running down the final straight and it was freezing cold, it was raining, it was horrific. And I remember running down the straight and the whole thing was shaking. There were people like high-fiving me and like there's video footage and I was trying to high-five people but I was just all over the place. My hand wasn't connecting with anyone and I was getting so dizzy and I crossed the finish line and I just collapsed and Pierce Leonard caught me and, and like I ended up just sort of laying there. I was just, I think it was just exhaustion and that. And they put me on an IV drip and everything else and I was just sick but like, I guess the moral of the story was round four, I came back and I raced really well down at Portsea. I got a fourth and I kind of came back. Came down to the fifth and final round We're racing at Noosa that year. Really stormy, almost got canceled. I was going into um, the final race second overall behind Shannon. I think I only had to beat him by um, two or three points. And um, went into the final race, Noosa dead flat. Zane Holmes gets his own wave to win the race out in front. There was six of us on this next wave, I remember. It was Shannon, Kane, Kai Hurst, myself, maybe Reece Drury or somebody else. And I remember I was like, if I win this sprint up the beach, if I get second and Shannon gets last, I win the series here. I remember looking along and thinking, whoa, I can win the series right here. And as I said before, I always back myself. And I got up and I was winning. I was literally five metres from the finish line in second to get it. And Kai Hurst went straight past me up the inside. And I was just like, oh, no. And then Shannon got last in, the, um, in that run finish up the beach. And um, so I ended up losing the series by one or two points to him. I can't remember exactly how it went down now. Yeah, But, like, I finished second in the series. It was the best result I'd ever had um, in the new train series at the time, 2010-11, second in the series to channel by one or two points. But I remember thinking, like, that was just the biggest learning curve or stupidest thing to this day that I still look back at or a missed opportunity after Bond died, typical just young and, and not being mentally as, like, smart as I, as I was I was middle of the series. I was leading the series. I should have gone home that night early, had dinner, gone home, done recovery the next day. Instead, I went out, celebrated with all my mates and, and got really sick. You know, when, As you know, as an athlete, when you're training and racing like you do, our immune system is just sitting on that fine line all the time anyway. If you go out and have a late night and have some beers and stuff, it's not the yeah. right process of what you should be doing post-race when the end goal is to win a series, not to win a race. And, a very stupid mistake sort of thing by me and and I still look back at this today as like I probably could have won a series or might sorry I might have had a better chance of winning a series had I not got gone out that night and improved my 10th in that endurance race at Coolham and even got an 8th which still would have been the worst result of my series but even an 8th would have been good enough to do it you know or a 7th so that's yeah, that's where you talk about tough lessons you know but fully, completely my fault, yarn, stupidity, and you're not looking at the end goal. Sometimes you're so caught up in the moment or winning a race at Bondi, super exciting and whatever else. But the end goal for me at that time was the end of the series at Noosa. So that was tough.
0: I guess it was the fine line between enjoying the experience, appreciating the result, but then maybe taking it a little bit too far. Maybe you have a few beers instead of going out all night. It's about the thing you learn as you go along. And you may may have gone worse if you didn't do that, you know? So you just don't really know. True. So exactly, it's, yeah. It's one of those things that you've got to look back on. And you go, yeah, it was a mixed opportunity potentially, but it's also something that I look back on and I've learned from. And you were lucky enough to have the situation turn on its head back in uh, 16, it's, and 17. It's, it's
1: funny too, because like you sort of said that, there is the other side of the coin. I'll play devil's advocate here. Imagine if I went home after Bondi, I didn't celebrate it at all, was super like, you know, a little bit bummed because I didn't get to go out and have a few beers and enjoy the win. And I went to Coulomb and finished 12th or 14th and did everything right, textbook right. And I still fell short. Well, then maybe I would have looked back and been like, well, I got second in the series. Maybe I should not have enjoyed that win at Bondi. So that's where you've got that, that balance that we sort of spoke about before, where you make these choices and you kind of just got to, write it out regardless of the result because you don't actually know what the other result could have been. You, you made a decision and that was what happened and that's all you can go off. There's no point thinking, you know, hypothetically what may have happened.
0: And what, and so I guess that comes to the point, what motivates Matt Poole from, I guess, back in those days to now, like what is, what are the driving motivations for you to to run around for a couple more series? Like I know you've joined North Fifth, I think it was yesterday now when we're recording and, You've, you've, you're continuing your career for a few more years. You love racing. You love the competition. You love the camaraderie, I'm sure, around the surf clubs. But what are the defining motivators for you to continue to race and train and travel and all those type of things?
1: Yeah, um, motivation is one of the hardest things because it's almost impossible to to imitate, you know. You, everyone sort of says, oh, just get up and go swim training like... Um, it's just, just get up and do it. It's like, mate, that's impossible if you don't have motivation, if you don't have that drive or something, whatever it is, and everyone has their own little internal demons and battles or goals and stuff to motivate themselves to go and do those sessions. For me, it's funny. I guess it's always changing, but I, I always look for sometimes things that, sometimes it's different things. Sometimes it's like, and, and you never talk about them or share them because it's just something that you want to hold close to yourself. Sometimes it's something that's, um, a competitor, an athlete has said or made comment to someone and you just sit there and you go, you know what, that's going to be my motivation for this season to come out and make sure, you know, I, I make you eat your words sort of thing. And you probably will never ever tell them. You'll probably never even tell anybody, but sometimes it could be something as little uh, and as simple as that. It's just a self-drive to get out and be better every day to, to, to beat somebody or to win a certain race. Um, sometimes it's it's a it's a different goal. You want to win a certain race, and and the draw of winning that race is all you want. Like I know for me, last year a huge part of my motivation was conquering the demon of the Colingata Gold, a race that I've respected but hated through my entire career. I tried to do it a couple of times earlier in my career, and just every day I felt like I gave so much time and commitment and effort to that race. And then on race day. Um, just never delivered a good race, just always had terrible performances and things would go wrong. I just had a shocker and it would just left me so sort of bitter and twisted that um, that and on top of it, I don't feel it suits my style of racing or, you know, me, but um, that was why I just sort of never did it. And um, last year when they made it a part of the Ironman series, I had to like, I didn't really have a choice. I was like, well, go out there and have another shit day and sulk about it and then get ready or don't do it at all and just put all your eggs into the next four rounds because you only get one drop round in a series of five races. So call that your drop round by not even putting a foot on the start line and and hope that you just have four mistake-free races in the next four or just get motivated and and just give it everything. And, And that was what I did. I actually had the best preparation I've ever had in years. I just got myself so fit, so strong, and um, finished second in the of the gold last year, only 15, 20 seconds behind Bevy. And like, you know, that was a dream result for me. I never thought I'd get like a, a second in the gold. And even the race that I had, I, I feel like it was almost perfect. Maybe made one or two small mistakes here or there, but I had a really good race. And um, the, the biggest thing for me was that confidence, that preseason that I did, um, I went on to the, the round two at Burley and I had without a doubt the best race I've ever had of my career. I ended up winning to Burley. It was an M shaped sort of endurance style race. And I and I won by like over two minutes, I think it was, or something. I had a very command; I beat the field by Tannen Linden by second and I had pretty much finished the last ski leg as he was just going out for the second part of the M. So um, for me, that was insane. Like that day, I was as fit as I'd ever been because of the pre-season I did for the Cooling Out Gold because of the new motivation. Um, I felt super confident coming after the race. And I went out and I just executed really early in the race. I got a small opportunity, a small break. And rather than second guessing myself or doubting myself, I went, nah, I'm gonna back myself and go on my own and, and just break the field. And, and I managed to be able to do that through, you know, racing hard and getting a few lucky little key moments of waves at critical times. Um, it came out really well. So when you sort of talk about, I guess, um, yeah, that I guess that, that that's sort of more or less what sort of drives me is, is either races or people or um certain things. I guess getting sort of older now I find it hard to get motivation every year. So I need to always be searching for motivation because I tell you what, getting getting out of bed in winter at five AM when it's freezing cold is um it gets tougher every every year, for sure. I don't. I won't miss swim training when I retire. That's for
0: sure. Yes, you, you, swimming has never been your favourite thing to do, even coming from a kid, and and now to now you're 32 and you're still going swim training every morning. But you can't really say it's freezing cold on the Gold Coast. So I'm sorry, it's uh, it's not even. It's a freezing we'll, 16 degrees. I have to put yeah. a jumper on. <laughs> yes, but. So you've got all these different motivators and as, as it goes along, your motivation changes. You've got different people um, motivating you, whether it's from like external sources, from like sponsors or from um, club wants you to do well, um, your girlfriend wants you to do well, whatever it is. Then you've got your, obviously your internal motivation trying to achieve results and that type of thing. But what do you define as success?
1: Um, for me, for me, success is, I kind of look at it as... Um, doing every aspect of being a perfect, not not just racing and winning results. I look at success as being every aspect of being an athlete to my absolute best. That is training, racing, results, sponsors, profile, social media, um, income. That's like, you know, off the top of my head, that's probably seven things that I, I focus on. If I if I don't have the income, I can't afford to do what I want to do. I'm going to have to go out and get another job. If I don't have sponsors, well, then that's going to coincide with the um, income problem. Um, results, you need results because then results are the catalyst of sponsors and income. Um, training, you need to be committing to training, otherwise you don't get the results, and then it goes down the line. So when you sort of determine success, a lot of people would probably say, oh, success is determined by trophies on your mantelpiece at home or the races you won, the races you didn't win. Not really. Like some of my biggest sort of life lessons or biggest successes, are, as I sort of mentioned before, about say the Bondi result or the, or the Noosa result came on the back of losses or, 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 or close misses. Um, the 17th in my first year of the series was one of the biggest successes because I could have easily just packed up and gone home to Sydney, but I didn't. I went the other way and I said, no, I'll work even harder. And turn this seventeenth into a credible result or a respectable result, so that 's a success I, you know I could have gone home, I could have packed up and retired i didn't I kept fighting it out. you know you, these are all sort of factors of success, so I think more or less all those seven things that I just mentioned they all work in intertwined really closely with each other. you know if you 're doing one right, then the others will probably benefit on the back of that as well but Certainly for, for me, um, social media, I'm doing that right because I want to keep my sponsors happy. I want to keep them paying me so that I keep my income. Um, and that allows me to do what I'm doing. The more income I have, the more it allows me to train full-time or professionally and put time into recovery and all those other things, the more I'm training the results. So it's just it's one big vicious circle. You no, know? not vicious. It's just one big circle of um, what you need to do to
0: get success. Yeah, basically, you've got to look at yourself as a business and, and you've got to have multifacets facets of your business to be successful. Otherwise, and if one falls down, the rest of it comes down with it. And if, if one comes up, they probably all come up. So you've got to be exactly working exactly. always, not only in the water when it counts on race day, but obviously with your sponsors, with your marketing, with your training, with all the different things that make an athlete what they are today because an athlete isn't just defined as results anymore. An athlete is defined as, yeah, you've got almost got to be a personality and a social media guru and a, you've got to be good sure. at your business. You've got to be able to have, communicate well with people, sell things, do things. So there's that. And that's something you've done really, really well. And it's something that I've also been inspired by because I've always seen that Matt Paul has always had like really good sponsors and always pr- like pride himself really well on what he does and how he looks and you've always done really well. So if there's any athletes out there who are trying to get, Um, sponsors to achieve their dreams or partnerships as I like to call them what would you say to them and how do they go about it
1: yeah look um I guess for any sort of young kids aspiring to to do what they want to do like just you got you got to sit back and enjoy the roller coaster as I sort of said before you're going to have more losses than you'll have wins that's like the harsh reality of it you're going to have probably more shit days at training than you do good um but every sort of moment, every sort of setback is a new opportunity to take two steps forward. Um, I think so many kids or guys these days, we're going into such a funny era with all this sport and stuff now, and even social media versus influencers. That's probably one of my most daunting sort of topics to talk about. Is like, I feel like athletes that lead a really fit and healthy lifestyle have um, these loyal. Followers or people following what they're doing, but they might not have big follower numbers say on on social media. We have people genuinely that are watching what we do and say and eat and things like that and so like it, it, it's so sort of um, important that we do sort of stay true to who we are and what what we're trying to be and, and promote and brands and things like that. but I think for other people it's just like um, I would just tell them that it's a roller coaster and you, you need to be able to work hard you can't just sort of a lot of people get rewarded nowadays for participation awards and things like that. And whilst I don't disagree with that, I also feel that like in life, there's always going to be winners and losers and more often than not, it's the people that have worked hard and um, suffered setbacks and things like that, that are going to end up being winners. Um, so, you know, when you're young, enjoy yourself, live life, have fun, um, do what it is you want to do. But if you do go down the life or, or career of trying to be a professional athlete of any kinds, just be prepared that it's not an easy road. It's going to be tough. You're going to have to fight for every inch. Nobody will give you anything. And I, and believe me, if you're prepared to become complacent or sit back on your own results, somebody else will come along and be more than happy to take it from you. So that's probably you know all all I can offer is, but um, you know it, it's a great lifestyle, and I've been very fortunate to to do what I've been able to do in our sport. And um, yeah, obviously. Sooner or later, probably in the next couple of years, this chapter will come to an end and a new one will start. So, I'm um, sort of starting to transition and get myself ready for that next chapter. So, um, yeah, it's just all part of it.
0: And, and one thing I did want to touch on is I know that you do like a lot of water sports, you do a lot of water, like different events, like especially back in 2014, winning is doing water mana, racing on stand ups. And we have, you had this new concept come into the sport last year. And I know you're very passionate and vocal about it not coming in and you didn't want to see it because it was going to change what the sport represented to you. Can you like help me understand like why, why you were so vocal against it considering you did so many different water sports and you, and you sort of see yourself as a waterman.
1: Yeah, that I was in sort of the hardest sort of territory with that one because I have done so many sort of different sports cross hibernated events and sports and stuff like that. my, disagreement with the event wasn't necessarily uh, with the event itself. If, if, it, if that event was, say, put on by an independent event organiser or sponsors or anything like that, and it wasn't associated or affiliated to Surf Life Saving or the Ironman series as such, I wouldn't have had any problems with it. I actually loved the idea. I sort of sat back on. I wish I could have done that, but I didn't believe in who was running it and their, their sort of direction for it. So to give a little bit of sort of context to, to the IronX event last year, I don't believe that the Ironman series, and I'll say this openly, has had adequate investment or funding from sponsorships and governing parties to deliver the best possible product to the Ironman series, to allow that to grow, to get better, to generate more sponsorship, to develop more marketing, to get better airtime on TV, to get more cameras on beach for a better production. And as we talked about, it's one big bubble, bubble. When you're running a live sport or any sport, it all costs money and the more money you put into something, the better you get in return. We haven't, our sport has suffered a very, very shoestring budget for a number of years now. So when the governing body said, this is not going well, this is not struggling, everybody agrees with that, it is struggling, it isn't what it could be or it isn't what it should be. If we had a blank checkbook, it could be 10 times better. But when they sort of deviated and said, we're going to go and start this new concept event of SUP cross Ironman cross sort of CrossFit style event. I looked at how much that was being spent on that event and the prize money that was being awarded. And I felt that it was truly an honest slap in the face from surf life saving to sort of sit back after years and years of underfunding or underinvesting in our, our sport and the tradition of their sport and what it's been since hundreds of years and to say, it's dead, it's dying, and we're doing something different, I kind of was like, we all agree with you, but because of it's a monetary problem, and let's sit down and try and find out a way to, to put more money into this exactly that so that we can make this thing better and watch it get bigger and better and grow. And that's democracy. Everyone's obviously got a different opinion and everyone can sit here and say that. But I felt for Surf Life Saving, as the governing body, they weren't in a position to sort of say that. Had NutriGrain, the major sponsor, come along and said, We want to run this event and this is what it's going to be, I'd be like, Absolutely. NutriGrain's not tied to surf life saving. NutriGrain's not tied to CrossFit or whatever. They can go and put their money in a BMX race if they want to do it. And we can do a BMX race if that's what they want to do. But um, more or less, it was just like, So I was upset with SLSA doing it. And I sort of said, I made my stance very clear that. I didn't feel that their money was being invested right or properly for the Ironman series. So I was un- I was baffled why they were putting this amount of money into a concept event and trying that. Does the concept event look cool? Absolutely. Could it work? Absolutely. But it wasn't something that I prided on, prided on from Surf Life Saving putting their time and effort into. For me, it was the Ironman series. So, um, and and to give perspective of that too, another sort of backhand in the face and and call us, you know. Spite, whatever it is, like that day alone was a forty-five-minute race, one-off standalone event. Came next time, won, and made twenty-five thousand dollars. In the in the Kellogg's Ironman series, also sponsored by Surf Life Saving, the governing body. Round two at Burley was a forty-five-minute endurance race, and I won that event and got three thousand five hundred dollars. So. Three thousand five hundred for the same effort by the same governing body in our traditional sport of what they do and promote, versus twenty-five thousand dollars for this fairy tale concept trial event was a bit of a slap in the face to me and to everyone else. So that was more or less why I took a stance of no, I'm not participating in this. I'm not, you know, promoting this. Do I think it's a cool event? Yes. Do I think surf life saving should be putting that much money into trying to do that? No. But I do think it has its place in sitting alongside the Ironman series, but they need to work out their finances and try and bring in some more money or more sponsorship or, or something else before they can go off and spend that sort of money into that. But yeah, that's more or less my take on it all.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's very, very interesting. And I don't disagree. I think that Ironman have been underpaid for a long time. And I guess it was one of the reasons why I stopped trying to chase the dream back when I was like just missing out on Ironman trials. Cause it was just like, well, even if I make the series and I run around and finish, i don't know top 15 or something like that that was probably my ability level what's the what's the point and that's what kind of why i moved away and that's what i've been doing the down so as a professional series and a professional athlete i can see that opinion but yeah it was just interesting to see like a guy who's got has such a water waterman background to be so anti the establishment and anti the, the sport sure. in a way but um going forward like has it helped like the series get any more like you know what the series is happening this year like is there anything like in the works. Like, are the Iron Xs going to happen again? Do you know? Like, or is it going to be? Is there more money going to be put into the Utrecht Iron Man series? I've seen like a few comments saying like it's a new exciting concept uh, from a couple of you guys. Like, what's happening this year for the professional Iron Man series? Yeah,
1: look, I know that the powers to be I had a big sort of conversation literally yesterday or two days ago when they're sort of in the final processes. I'm not on that committee board. I think my voice is too loud, too big, too <laughs> many. Maybe I upset too many people at they sort of say. I don't get a spot there. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, um, this year, there's definitely going to be an I Man series again. Um, it's all sort of obviously in the very much the final stages. I have heard some um, locations that they're thinking about going to, and I'll say that I'm very, very excited about it. Very excited for sure. Um, as for prize money and things like that, no idea. I don't think they're at that sort of stages yet. Um, I hope that SLSA is finding more investments, more sponsors. Um, so we can take some of that um, burden or strain off NutriGrain solely as a major sponsor, maybe more money, more more stories we can tell for some of these athletes. A lot of great young athletes coming into the sport now and I'd love to see that they get to um, have some of the opportunities that I've been very fortunate to have over my career. So um, as I sort of said, there's definitely an Ironman series going ahead this summer. The locations that are 90, 95% locked in are very exciting. I'm looking forward to it. And um, as for formats, everybody's got to try and stay evolve. If you don't evolve, you die. So um, they're probably in a funny space right now trying to find middle ground between a traditional Ironman series versus a 9X concept. They're probably trying to find some sort of exciting concept to, to do that and stay relevant and, and to keep up with um, sports all around the world that keep evolving, keep changing, and continue to grow. Um, yeah, that, that's about as much as I know for now. I mean, for me, my 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 preseason's more or less going to be exactly the same training for the Coolangatta Gold. It's highly unlikely that I will do the Coolangatta Gold. That'll be in middle to end of October. Yeah. Um, the next big event for me, I'll do all the training for the Coolangatta Gold, get myself super fit. The next big event for me will be the Sean Partners WA Race Week, November twenty one to twenty eight. That um, is shaping up to be an incredible sort of weeks racing and insurance partners have actually looked through and make an inclusion of a downwind paddleboard event six kilometers I believe and also an Ironman event they'll do a trial in Wednesday morning and then an Ironman event um, traditional sort of surfboard swim ski surf saving event uh, Wednesday afternoon so that'll be a new addition to last year's WA race fleet, which is really exciting I'm looking forward to and then I'll have a crack at some of the ocean ski events which again is more or less what we spoke about earlier um, it's not my bread and butter but I love doing them it's good fun it's a good test good challenge it's um it's specific to racing it's not the exact same but it's very specific to sort of the ocean ski um surf ski racing so yeah it'll be a good opportunity for uh you know an end of pre-season long winter sort of hit out you are going to be coming out of coronavirus probably itching and scratching to start traveling start racing start training again get um everything back to normality
0: Yeah, it's going to be very cool because I know that we both haven't been able to do our normal winter schedules, which is basically where my season starts. But when it's your sort of off season where you go and do all these different events, but it's nice to sort of see Sean partners in their involvement in ocean paddling and in Ironman and all sorts of water sports bringing sort of an exciting sort of new concept in a way with the sharon partners race week the australian ocean racing series there's all these different ocean ski races happening around the place and it's great to see guys like yourself getting involved now it's um been obviously it's something that we probably all haven't been able to all do at the same time so this year might be the year that everyone can sort of especially all the australian guys anyway go to the australian partners race go to the australian ocean racing series and actually compete against the best Australian athletes in the water like that doesn't really, that hasn't really happened since let's say the uncle toby series when all like different water sports athletes would actually go and do the same event so it's actually really cool to see
1: yeah definitely i mean everyone's sort of saying it's shaping up to be a massive sort of race week i think the ocean ski boys are just too good they will definitely have an advantage but like you said it's going to be really interesting to see all those Ironman guys, your Shannon Eckstein's back. Kane Extine will likely be there. Ali Day, Matt on myself, Kendrick Louie, and then we'll be coming up against yourself, Corey Hills. Um, you're gonna have Kenny Wallace. You're gonna have the Collins boys. You're gonna have Macaighinard. Um, you know the Norton brothers. Like it's gonna be, a, it's gonna be a red hot start line for that um that that race week for sure. It'll be. Crazy to see. I mean, Corey Hill's got to be the red-hot favourite, I would imagine, going in. He's just so good. He's, and he's just shown why time and time again for a long time now. So, he's going to be hard to beat. I don't know if any of the Ironman boys will, will get near him. Ali Dave kind of shocked everyone by coming out at Molokai in, in really good swells and conditions. Probably dead, flat, hot Molokai. Everyone would have said, wow, Ali's a red-hot chance. But in really good um, swells and, and skill-based sort of style, Molokai racing, Ali finished third. Um, you know. But, that was pretty crazy for his first attempt and more or less his first ocean speed sort of like race that I'm aware that he's done. So he's really good, no doubt. Um, It'll be interesting to see how all the specific Ironman guys go against um, yourself and and all the ocean speed guys. It'd be crazy.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. And speaking of motivation, that's a good motivator for everyone to sort of get involved and, and sort of chase the, chase the money, but chase the week, chase the experiences with so many amazing athletes and actually get involved in the ocean ski community. So it's going to be a really good one. Another exciting thing, we briefly touched on it, joining North Fifth Surf Club this year. Um, you've got obviously an exciting announcement you had yesterday. What, what sort of like the, the arrangement there and, and how long are you going to be going for, do you think, for the rest of your career?
1: Yeah, it's um, really exciting, really exciting to be back there. It's, it's kind of weird to, you know, sort of, as I said, moved up, left Sydney and joined there 2007, 2008, to be back there now. Um, I'll be there for what I see as the the remainder of my career. I don't plan on leaving anytime soon. Um, different stage of my career now. I feel like I've certainly got a lot to sort of give to those younger guys. I'm probably not as... Um, narrow-minded and selfish in the sense of just you know putting my blinkers on turning up doing what I need to do for training going home I'm very much more looking to help sort of build and grow and offer anything I can through years of experience to the younger kids helping develop them come help them come through and um, yeah look I was very fortunate that um, Earl and, and uh, Sean Partners came through to in the joint agreement and support um, getting me across and Bevy across to Northcliffe to race there it's an incredible club you know you know what it's like at Northcliffe I don't think there's any other club that does it like them in terms of demanding success and doing it perfectly from the, the top all the way down the coaches are top notch and the athletes that they get is a, it's a deep talent pool of athletes for sure so looking forward to racing with those open guys Shannon's going to be back a little bit apparently he's coming back for the WA race week so he'll probably be in and around there as much as he can with training Kane time's always in and around it. I don't know anyone knows what Kane's doing. I don't think Kane knows what Kane's doing. And um, then we've got Cuffy, Corey Taylor, Bevy, myself, you've got Coonsy and a bunch of those younger kids. Um, we've got Khan Caradag from Curra, a young junior guy who's really good as well. So um, we're going to have a good good off season, good, good summer to come. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited.
0: Well, yeah, North, this is a fantastic club and it sort of um, breeds dominance and breeds a really, really good pool of athletes. So it's obviously cool to be back there after sort of a bit of a maybe 10 or 12 years since you've been there last (laughs) Yeah, But um, you probably never thought you'd end up back there. But it's obviously a nice place to sort of finish off your professional career since you basically started your professional career there as well. Now, what's but after this? Just lastly, like what's next for... Matt Poole like are you looking forward to the future like maybe three years four years down the track when you may be not racing Ironman anymore what do you think you'll be doing is, is there any plans in place or are you just going to take it by ear and and see what happens
1: yeah no I've um, started studying I'm doing my real estate license uh, I've um, spoken to a few people and, and connections that I've met over the years and I'm looking to get into commercial real estate it's something I sort of like funny enough sort of been quite interested in over a, over a period of time now so I've started doing the course, which is weird for me because I was never academically much back in high school. So all these years later, um, to be sort of online and, and doing it from home, is, I'm finding it a little bit of a break in pattern um, of lately. But I'm really enjoying it. I think that's probably the biggest thing is when you're enjoying studying and learning new stuff, it, it makes it more manageable. So... Yeah look I'm I'm looking to finish this get my um real estate license and then um over the next couple of years I'm going to continue to racing and, and keep my sponsors hopefully and um slow, start a slow transition into life after racing commercial real estate see where it takes me.
0: Well that's awesome that you've got a sort of a plan sort of in the in the future as well and I'm sure you'll do well cuz I I know you'll be a good salesman mate you'll you'll sell ice to eskimos I'm sure <laughs> but um <laughs> Well, mate, I really appreciate your time today. If is uh, if people want to find out more about Matt Pool, where can they go? Um, probably my
1: socials. Probably the best thing: Instagram, Facebook. Um, yeah, Instagram's Matt underscore Pool One, and Facebook is just Matt Pool Line. And so, usually, I'm pretty up to date. I know coronavirus. So I was pretty off the grid. I I really enjoyed taking a bit of time off. But yeah, pretty much Instagram and Facebook's the best way and the best insight into anybody at all you know that's the beauty of social media isn't it you can reach out to absolutely anybody at any time and ask them a question send them a message or comment like tell them what you do like don't like whatever it is um that's that's the beauty of it so i think if anyone wants to get in contact with me that's the place to go
0: Alright, well yeah guys, that's where you know where to look and to everybody out there who has been watching thank you so much for following along with the Boothcast if you want to check these out, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and if you want to watch any of these videos with any of the great guests I've had so far please check out Michael Booth on Facebook and there's a Boothcast section there so Matt, thank you so much for joining me today
1: Thanks Ease for that Boothie really appreciate it mate and I'll, uh, I'll see you in WA for race week we'll have a banter, me and you will have a little bit
0: Oh, I'm sure we will. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, mate. Okay. See ya.